Welcome to the Mind Money Spectrum Podcast, where your hosts, Aaron Ogti and Trishal Patel, go beyond traditional finance questions to help you explore how to use your money to achieve the freedom you want in life. In this episode, Aaron and Trishal try to address the following question. If things aren't going well, when do you make a change? How do you overcome the emotional gravity of past actions to make good decisions moving forward? They discuss how impactful the status quo can be when framing a decision as an opt-in or an opt-out. They also examine the disposition effect, prospect theory, and pre-mortems. And sometimes simply having a third-party opinion can help overcome behavioral bias. And now, on to our conversation. Hi, my name is Aaron Ogti. I'm a financial advisor in the Bay Area, and I'm here with Trisha Patel, a wealth manager on the East Coast. Hi, Aaron. Great to be here today, and thanks, everybody, for listening. Great to be here as well. So last week, we talked about kind of the general question, how do I know if I'm doing well? It's kind of from a tracking and benchmarking perspective, both as it pertains to investments, but also lifestyle. And the natural follow-up question to that is, well, if I'm not doing well by whatever my self, I don't say self-imposed, but by whatever measuring device I chose to compare to, how do I make a change? Kind of, if I'm not doing well, how do I stop or quit the thing that's not going well? How, how do I throw in the towel? And this is a very difficult question. It's actually probably even more difficult than last week because you and I have a, have a spouse, good, disciplined, long-term, weather the downturns, buy and hold strategies when it comes to investing. A lot of times that kind of pertains to other things in life. Just keep saving, keep saving, keep investing, keep investing. So, so many of these things we've talked about are these, again, disciplined, long-term strategies. So how do we decide to even think about when to stop or when to quit? And today we're kind of talking about both from an investment perspective, but also a broader lifestyle perspective, kind of acknowledging just like how powerful defaults and the status quo are. And so if you have made some kind of determination that whatever I chose is not up to the standard that I expect, how do you decide when to quit? So Trisha, for for you, kind of so starting from kind of like a simpler case, can you think of an example, maybe investment specifically, maybe related to your hedge fund days, of a time where like this isn't going well, we need to quit this particular thing. Yeah, it's a very important question, which I think kind of gets overlooked because when you jump into an investment strategy, you're really thinking about all the good stuff that's going to happen and how things are going to go exactly as how you plan or foresee. And a good part of what might not get too much attention is, well, what happens if that's not exactly true. What happens if things don't go exactly as planned? And having a contingency plan is important because many investments are not lifelong things, especially if you're in the bucket of trying to kind of like beat the market. And, you know, when I first started investing, I I did come across this understanding that it is a concern to to put some thought on on what do you do if if things aren't going correct or you know what if you have an investment and it plays out but then you know the thesis has been met and you know the stock price that you predicted would go up 20% in the year well it's up 20% what what do you do now but you know the the more common thing to think about that gets overlooked is yeah it just didn't go your way do you keep at it do you double down do you wait longer do you throw in the towel do you run for the hills these are all important questions to think about 
And often it's probably better to think about these before you jump into the investment, because once you're kind of knee deep in it, a lot of emotions can come into play, which we'll discuss that can kind of push you against what's probably best for you if you were thinking a little more rationally. And these are behavioral biases that are known. So it's probably good to talk about that. But, you know, when I first started investing, I realized that there was some benefit to having a longer term strategy. I started reading a bunch about Warren Buffett and his philosophy. You know, one of his quotes is the longest or the best holding period is forever, meaning if he intends to buy an investment, he intends to buy it forever and he hopes to invest in companies that can kind of stand the test of time. And in which case, well, then you don't have to worry about ever selling because look, you, your holding period is forever. You're going to stick through it through thick and thin. And, you know, over time, I started to realize that's a little, really hard to do. Even if you hold on to these great companies that you thought would be awesome. You know, one example that came to mind is one thing I was looking for in the early 2000s is getting into a sector known as specialty retail. And these are basically stores that targeted, you know, like teenagers and young adults, like Abercrombie, Abercrombie and Fitch. If you've heard of, are they still around? I don't even know. Uh, Hollister and Aeropostel. <laughs> I, I I remember those stores and the smells and music emanating from them that like just hit you as soon as you walk in. Right, right. And they, they were like the upgrade to like the gaps and, yeah. you know, like Macy's and all of that. And, you know, the, the notion was, okay, here's a different model for having clothing that's more niche, more targeted, more trendy, more updated and so on. And, you know, I, I thought, what a great place to be. They were showing good promise. You know, this is early 2000s. Well, you know, one thing I completely missed is the fact that malls were going to die in 20 years. <laughs> you know, the fact that things were going to go online and these um, these types of retailers were not going to make that transition as well as they, they probably could have. And their, their bread and butter outlets for, you know, distributing goods is going to effectively disappear. So it's one of those things where you can have the best intentions and do the you know all of your analysis, but you know missing a, a large change, a secular change in you know the way the economy operates can kind of leave you high and dry. And at that point, you got to cut your losses. So I'm almost a little curious. Like, were you either doing options or buying stocks in these companies? Yeah, so I, I was buying stocks. I, I had a investment club with with some friends, and this was one area that we looked at, and we did our you know whatever research that was common to do, fundamental research, something mm. we talked about before, where we're kind of walking the stores and looking at those financial statements and kicking the tires on these companies, and then trying to pick the ones that had the most promise, but you know also were valued at a price that was sensible. You know, the notion is all companies go through ups and downs. And if you pick a great company that's on a dip, well, then you have a, an even better shot of having a, a long-term advantage. It, the notion is you kind of make your profit on your, when you buy, not when you sell. You know, the, these are all just things that were kind of well-known and talked about, but just applying them rigorously to an investment strategy is what we were trying to do. I think that's actually a great point. It's like, how, how do you... So I think that's what, that's the trouble with quitting. It's like, how do you decide, oh, this is not going well and it's going, it's not going to do well in the future versus this is just a dip. Because I think um, uh, when my wife and I moved from San Diego to the Bay Area, we, uh, we had bought a house in 2007. And like when you talk about... Uh, have you make the money when you buy it's like yes the timing of our purchase affected that and so when we moved up here we, we couldn't really sell it to make any money so we ended up holding on to that property we rented out we rented up here and that property was cash flow negative for 
least five years. Uh, probably, I think it, after about five years, got to about where the mortgage was, but it took another three to four years to where it started kind of growth in rents covered um, property taxes and like all the normal expenses. So it took a good 10 years to be truly cash flow positive or like just cash flow neutral kind of thing. That was the break even point. And so it's like one of those things like if we could have gotten something out of it earlier on, we probably would have sold it, especially because it would have helped us buy our own home up here. Like it felt weird to own a home in San Diego, rent it out and then rent up here, even though that actually has kind of influenced some of my philosophies as it comes to cash flow and buying real estate. But it comes to the idea like that turns, like we wait long enough, like every other strategy we talk about, if we wait long enough, it turned out to be a pretty good investment. But like, how, how do you even begin to think about making that decision in real time? Like, how do you, I think that's the hard part is it's both, it's not just a, I think the harder question it then like how to quit is just, should I quit? Should I get out? Right. It's, it's a tough one. And what I started to realize is looking deeper into the investment space. Again, I, I feel like it gets kind of overlooked and you know, it took me, we're going to fast forward like 10 years later to my, my hedge fund stint. And, you know, there it, it became a, a pretty important issue to understand because the goal of hedge fund strategies are to look for these kind of esoteric plays that the market hasn't quite caught on to and to make strategies that can kind of take advantage of them and, you know, capitalize on these plays. But one thing that's always a concern is, well, what if the market does catch on? And what if there are plays that, you know, they looked good for this amount of time, but then they went through a rough spell, but they're still there and they might come back. And these are all important things to consider. If you're an outside investor investing in a hedge fund and you put your money to work with them, well, how long are you going to give them before you throw in the towel if things don't go exactly how you had hoped? So they, they're very good questions to have. And it's definitely worth coming up with a plan before you know the, the money hits the door or enters the door, I should say. I, go ahead. Yeah, uh, so essentially, w one thing that we had to understand for our, our strategies that we were building as a hedge fund is how do we know that they're starting to work? How do we know that they're working? And how do we know when they stop working? Yeah, I, I like that. I think there, there's something I've read about in like business strategy uh, of a pre-mortem. And it's one of those things like, oh, this is a great idea, but... I haven't quite quite incorporated into to my work, but the idea of if you're taking on a project, you plan out in advance how that project could fail. Like you decide, okay, this project failed. Why did it fail? And I think it helps from a from a business planning perspective, it kind of helps you try to predict those what you would think are unpredictable scenarios, but sometimes they, they're just unlikely. They're actually are, they're almost predictable, just unlikely. And then you can be ready to adapt to those. Or it allows you to kind of plan like, oh no, this other outside influence that truly was unpredictable, malls failing, that kind of helps you understand, okay, no, this failed for a different reason. We probably can't make an adjustment along the way to get back on track. So that might be an acceptable time to acknowledge this failed for things outside of our control. We need to move on. And I, I haven't quite been able to kind of play it out like that. But the, the 
the closest thing I can think of with clients is when they are holding company stock, either from options, maybe they still have the options that's unexercised or they've exercised the options or RSUs that vest. RSUs that vest are probably the most common example because it gets back to that idea of if they do nothing, the default is as RSUs vest, they sell enough to cover the taxes and then you just hold on to the shares. So because that's the default, people who work at a publicly traded company that offers RSUs, you wait a few years and then, okay, now we have this much in company stock. Like Because they did nothing, they ended up with company stock. And so this does play out a decent amount. And so it's hard to think about in that moment, should we sell the company stock? Because it's done well. A lot of the tech companies, a lot of stocks have just done well over the last few years. If we sell it, they have capital gains because it's now gone up from their basis. So is it worth paying those taxes to get out? And what I try to help them understand is kind of a best case scenario, a worst case scenario, and then a most likely scenario. And by by having this framing, it helps them understand the implications of the risk that they're taking on. And it's not a, oh, this could double in value, could 10x, could go up to a certain amount. It's never like, here's what your investment would be. Because that's hard to truly comprehend. It's relating that to the lifestyle impact. And so usually the best example is, okay, a worst case scenario, like maybe it's the company doesn't go bankrupt, but it could go down 80, 90%. But it's enough, it's like there's enough risk in these publicly traded companies that you could see a lot of loss in value and basically can't depend on the single stock. With private companies, actually, the risk is zero. Any money you put into private company stock can go to zero. Well, with publicly traded companies, that those bankruptcies are kind of so rare that it's hard to really kind of plan. Like That's why they make the news. The, ba- the bankruptcies of publicly traded S&P 500 companies are so rare, they make the news. So I can, that's not like really worth planning around. But it is kind of reinforced the idea that we can't depend on the company stock. So in the worst case scenario of holding on to that stock, what does your lifestyle look like? Well, if you're still maxing out your 401k, especially if it's a couple and they're both maxing out 401ks, they have the cash flow to meet all their obligations and pay their mortgage payment, kind of the worst case scenario sometimes is just okay you're not financially independent until your late 50s early 60s which is what most people are thinking about anyways the best case scenario is that if this stock takes off which anytime you have that concentration risk is possible a diversified strategy isn't going to double in value from one year to the next a single stock could And it's not that it's your company's stock. It's just choosing any single stock. That's the kind of risk, that's kind of the upside potential that you have. If it can go to almost zero, it can also double in value. And so now you can even have stocks that could 5x, 10x. And so the upside is like, okay, you might be financially independent in five years. And so now you're having the conversation, okay, how are you going to spend your time if you're financially independent in five years? If you want to travel the world, okay, then we have, we have an idea. Okay, this might, might be worth the risk. If you're going to work anyways because you enjoy your job, that also is a factor. And so like, if you can plan these out, kind of a realistic lifestyle based on a worst-case scenario, realistic lifestyle plan based on a best-case scenario, and then a most likely is that well, no, this company is probably not going to go bankrupt and it's probably not going to 5x, 5x in value. But it'll probably grow with the normal stock market maybe because it's a concentrated position we might be able to get a little bit more. So it'll most likely be somewhere in the middle. And this is the closest thing I can think of to a pre-mortem of if they're holding on to the company stock and it goes down... 
we're not necessarily selling at that point because we don't we've already made a plan we don't need this company stock for the lifestyle objectives and we're okay holding on to it longer term to see if we can get to that some of that upside but on the flip side if it does do really well and we get to that lifestyle objective of okay now i can actually do this thing in my life that i wanted to do now we've gotten to a point where okay we don't no longer want the risk of that stock we actually want to diversify now we want to sell out pay the capital gains and kind of increase the probability of maintaining lifestyle i think another uh advisor uh meg bartelt talks about like if you've already won the game you don't need to keep playing. And I think this this is the closest thing I can think of like of a how to quit because it's not just it did poorly and I should get out. It's also it's doing well. It did really well and now I need to quit. And so I'm trying to think of what what are some other examples of either planning or other investments or do you have any examples of that that that, that kind of I don't want to say pre, I guess it would be do you have any examples of premortem that would be awesome but do you have any other examples of that planning in advance so that you're not making those in the moment emotional decisions right I I do have a handful uh, that I that might work here but before we jump to that I'm curious what what kind of premortem would make sense in the a little the tough case where the stock is just lagging and it, it just doesn't seem to be keeping up with um you know like a a benchmark um what's so, the premortem for that you know if they're if if it's not showing the promise but it's not terribly awesome like it's not terribly awesome it's not terribly poor uh most so most likely it'll be a few years down the road and something about their lifestyle has changed where they they might still want to kind of hold on and take that bet and that that's acceptable because they can still reach the goals or you know what I, I think i'm ready to move on from this company uh or uh sometimes like age of kids or having kids and kind of okay we want just a little more stability so the 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 best the pre-mortem of a company that's lagging is probably they're probably still going to hold on to it because we've done enough savings in all the other things. And unless their lifestyle plan has changed because they're not depending on this money, this is still can be considered that risky money. It's still kind of playing for that upside. And it would probably have to be Uh, that's a good question. Oh, man, that's a really good question. Because like, if it's lagging, it's, it's probably I, did something about the company change. I guess. Uh, yes. Okay. So I'm trying to think of, like, why is the company lagging that they would want to still hold on? Because I definitely like. I feel confident saying it's okay to keep holding on because we don't need we don't need to depend on that money. And that would be the plan of the default. But if it's, a, if it's a few years down the road and it's just lagging. So I guess realistically, most of the time the clients don't have any more an emotion. They don't have the emotional attachment anymore. Like uh, that's, that's usually one of the factors is that's probably that's probably the best way to say it. The factors are usually the client wants to hold on to the company stock for the upside. And okay, we're I'm okay with that if we've made a plan of if it doesn't go well, 
how do you still get to live the life you want? Because I'm never recommending that they hold on to the company stock. I think it's probably the best way. I don't do any stock analysis. I have no particular reason why this company is going to do better than this other company. I have clients at companies who have done very, very well. I have clients at companies that have seen the stock price cut in half. And so that allows me to kind of be agnostic about their particular company. And so if they ask me, like, should, should I hold on to this company's stock? And like, well, do you like, do you like it? It's like, yeah, I love the company. Oh, okay, that's fine. Or if they ask me, should I hold on to company stock? It's like, no, nah, I got no attachment. Okay, let's sell and move to a different side portfolio. So, so there's usually a reason why they're holding in the first place that is an acceptable risk, and that changes if the company's lagging. Usually, they no longer have that emotional attachment. And so at that point, okay, let's sell and move to a diversified portfolio. And they haven't cost themselves anything from a lifestyle perspective. But they are ready to move on. I think so. I guess I say my default recommendation would probably be selling enough company stock where it's no more than say ten to thirty percent of your overall net worth, or like just kind of comparing it to how much we're saving into 401ks or other diversified strategies. And if there's no attachment at all and no request to hold on to it, then yeah, probably selling most of it and diversifying. Um, so that, I'd say that's probably how it plays out, that if if it's lagging, the client isn't asking to hold on. The client is, becomes indifferent over time. Right. Yeah, that, that's good to know. So one thing that, that does come up from time to time is that there's a behavioral bias that has been researched and studied, and it occurs in the investment space particularly, and it's known as the, the disposition effect. And the notion here is that investors tend to hold on to their losers a bit longer than they should, than it would probably make sense to. And they tend to sell their winners more quickly. So with the disposition effect, investors put more weight on where they are right now relative to where they got in. And they there's an emotional attachment there that plays into their decisions. Whereas, you know, obviously the market doesn't know when you got in and, you know, how much you're up or down at this very moment. It, it has almost no bearing on where the stock is going to go from here. But, you know, if an investor is down, there's this tendency to hold on to that loss a little longer. And the notion is, if you don't sell it, you don't really lock in that loss. There's always that hope that it could revert back and you could you know, make your money back. And often th that feeling of hope can kind of blind an individual to the reality of the situation. So that that's something to kind of be aware of. and. Part of why th that that's out there, this was explained by some individuals that we we talked about many episodes ago, probably a couple of times by now, um, Kahneman and Traversky, and th they tied the disposition effect to the, their notion of prospect theory, which I think that that's why they won the Nobel Prize. If not, it was from research that jumped off of the prospect theory. But the notion is individuals put more weight on losing money than they would on an equal gain. Meaning if they have a 50-50 bet of, you know, gaining a, a hundred and losing a hundred on a coin flip, well, that in theory, you should be indifferent to that. However, for somebody to enter into that bet, they would want to gain 200 for the chance to lose a hundred before they would enter that bet, something like that. Yeah, they, they feel the, the, the loss about twice as hard as they appreciate the gain. Right, yeah. It's that, that feeling, you know, that, that actual um, you know, emotion that we feel for the losses ends up being greater in magnitude and impact towards our behavior than that equal and, you know, negative sign of the gain, you know, that, that positive gain. 
And that, that leads to these types of behavioral concerns where yeah, individuals might be holding on a little too long than they should to, to these losses because they, they kind of feel like they've, um, you know, they've invested so much already. They've put so much emotional effort into, into this that they don't want to kind of let go. So that's really interesting because in observation, especially in the example you provide, which does play out, I feel like it almost works the other way. And I'm almost guessing most other advisors feel this as well. They're going to compare their company stock to their 401k because they have both of these investments. And we'll say the 401k is a diversified all equity portfolio. Maybe it's just, just the S&P 500 sometimes. If the company stock is doing better than the S&P 500, they want to hold on to it. If the company stock is doing worse than the S&P 500, so in this case is your lagging scenario, they have no problem selling out of the stock and moving to that diversified portfolio. And it's almost every advisor's job of like helping them understand the risk that they're taking on. Like just because it has outperformed doesn't mean it's going to continue to outperform. It almost gets back to our conversation last week of like if that small cap value fund outperformed the index by 5%, you and I would still choose the small cap value fund that matched the index. And it's almost exactly the same where just that company stock, almost because it outperformed, advisors are more likely to think, well, that sounds like a good time to sell and move to the diversified portfolio. So it's like natural rebalancing of equities. And kind of this is this is why when you have a growth in value ETF in your portfolio and you rebalance between the two, you have the same kind of long-term risk reward expectation, but you might be able to improve your portfolio return. Kind of same thing with that single stock in a diversified stock portfolio. But if it's down, they have no problem selling, which I think Carl Richards talked about the idea of a righteous trick. It's kind of applying different psychological sales strategies to help better someone. And that actually might be an example. Okay, well, let's let's sell the company's stock and move to the diversified portfolio. I'm not going to say that the diversified portfolio is going to outperform the stock moving forward. And I don't 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 even mention that. But the diversification just helps reduce the risk so much more. That single company stock could still go down significantly more than the diversified portfolio. But I'll just kind of like I'll I'll let the client kind of play into their emotions and kind of let them have that as like okay, yes, no problem. Let's sell the company stock, move to the diversified portfolio, and I'll just kind of stop talking there. Like it still is. Based on all the other conversations with the client, still better for their lifestyle, still better for their long-term planning. Uh, but if it's the stock is outperforming, then I have to kind of push back a little bit more. Of okay, do we understand the risks that you're taking on by holding on to this? If you don't want to take on that much risk, we could sell a portion of this to reduce that risk. But just because it has outperformed recently doesn't mean it's going to continue to outperform. And it, that almost seems counter to what you were talking about, like people want to hold on to the losers. And I, I almost wonder, so so this is, probably, this is probably, it actually probably comes back to the framing or the default. In your example, they chose to buy that one stock. They, they put money in their brokerage account, they found the ticker, and they clicked buy. And so their default was, this was in cash, and I chose this investment. Whereas my client's default is, they did nothing, and they ended up with the stock. And this is like that classic opt-in versus opt-out, where for me, getting them to sell is changing their default. And... For you, in your example, getting them to sell is admitting they were wrong. Right. That could be it. You know, it's a different class when you're thinking stock options versus just standard equity investments. 
some of the research that kind of backed up these claims of disposition were done on mutual fundings, mutual funds, for example. So in that case, yeah, you're an investor who is actively seeking uh, a potential investment in a mutual fund. So you're going out and you're you're putting your efforts to work to research that fund. Hopefully, you're not putting too much weight on past performance, and you're you're kind of jumping in from there, you know, with with your own initiative. So it's it sounds like a big part of this, whether it's investments or just other kind of planning, is trying as much as we can to have a good understanding of the current situation. Now, what is the current situation? Where are we right now? And as an advisor, I don't know your history. And maybe you tell me a little bit about it, but I haven't gone through it with you. So as the advisor, I can help you moving forward, giving this potential range of possibilities. But on the individual side, acknowledging like all that history does is impact your emotions and feelings about about your current situation. If I said you have a stock worth $100 and okay, we'll project we can if we hold on to the stock, we'll assume it grows with normal stock market and here's how it'll impact your returns. It makes up this percentage of your portfolio. But for you or the, the client, it matters so much if you bought that stock for 120 or for 80. And it and it's like it's so hard to remove how we got to the current point. And this is almost kind of the 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 theory or philosophy of why some advisors hire their own advisors is just sometimes you need that third party of okay, here's the plan moving forward. I, I don't I don't I don't care what happened in the past because I'm removed from it. Yeah, that, that's a great point. I think one antidote to the disposition effect that I like to bring up if I if I come across it or if I if I get a sniff of it as I'm going through, you know, some current holdings or legacy positions is you kind of, you know, cover up the the cost basis and, you know, you, you ask a client, well, would you buy that stock today? Yeah, that that that's pretty good. And if the answer is no, then why are you in it? You know, the, the, if you don't trust your, if you don't trust that company enough to put your new money to work, why do you trust it enough to put your old money to work? Uh, that that so the the RSU comparison is because of the way the taxes of the RSUs work, it's almost exactly the same as if you got a cash bonus, had all the taxes withheld from your cash bonus, and then took your entire bonus and bought your company stock. Right, and some clients like, yeah, I think this place, our company's going places. I can see all the projects we're doing. Like, well, I'm excited. And sometimes like, eh, just I don't really probably wouldn't go through the effort. Okay, so if 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 we acknowledge like if you remove that emotional attachment that happens to be what you already have, and we can look moving forward, maybe it's okay to sell. Yeah, it's interesting because if if you come across somebody who's reluctant to sell, but they quickly come back with, "No, I wouldn't buy that stock." Yeah. Well, it's it's a bit of a catch twenty two, right? It, it, there's takes some mental gymnastics to realize that you you might not be in a situation that makes sense for you. If you could easily sell that stock and then you know buy anything else. Why yeah. would you hold it? Yeah. Yeah. But even then, like, I'll get clients like, I completely understand what, you, what you're saying. I'm going to hold on to the company stock. Right. <laughs> and uh, then it's that's... like, okay, like that's like, okay, so we have to have a plan in place of if this stock fails, that you aren't going bankrupt, that you aren't going, you're not going to be destitute, that you still get to live the life you want. Are you okay working an extra 
five years to save up for the money that you lost in this single company stock. And for some people, it's like, yeah, I can do that. I like my job. Other people's like, ah, man, when you put it like that, like you, you, you almost have to, you have to reframe it into some other emotional decision to, to, yeah. to kind of get people to understand the impact. Right. You know, a, a lot of people have probably heard this through the sunk cost, you know, fallacy. Yeah. The notion that it, it doesn't matter how much you've already put into an idea. If it's going against you, all that matters is what you think is going to happen from here on forward. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious, can you think of anything outside of finance or investments that you've had to either kind of make this decision to quit or uh, make a change, moving on to something else. Like, have you seen that play out in, in your life or, or conversations with clients? Yeah, it, it kind of has. Like, for example, we've learned about habits. And if, if you want to make a good habit, you got to stick with it a bit longer. You know, the, the high level notion is that if you rely on just motivation alone human motivation as it turns out is quite flaky especially <laughs> when you when you get really pumped up to get into an idea and you think okay in your mind i'm going to do this every day for you know 10 minutes and then everything's going to be awesome and i'm really motivated right now but it turns out that that motivation's not going to stick around <laughs> it's going to get you there you know initially but it's not what's going to keep you there and if, if you really want something to persevere, you, you got to do it just to do it, you know, when that phase inevitably comes where you don't want to do it. But, you know, the, the flip side of that notion is, well, you, you don't want to be doing stuff you don't want to be doing your whole life either. Yeah. And that kind of came to a head in my mind. It, it's interesting because... Um, just kind of unexpectedly, I had this notion that if I if I start a, a book, I'm going to finish it. And I that's what I just kind of did. I, I just trudged through, you know, the sometimes works that not only are they a bit, you know, challenging and deep and dense, but they're, in my personal opinion, I wasn't enjoying it. <laughs> But I'm like, no, I got to get through it. You know, I started it. Let me just finish it. And, I, you know, I had an acquaintance who just said one day, you know, you, you don't have to finish every book you start. And it was, you know, an analogy for something completely different. But something clicked in my mind like, wait, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> I, I don't really. And it and then, you know, what she had said is. Yeah, if, if you're not enjoying it, why put yourself through, you know, all this turmoil? Move on. There's plenty of more good books out there. And I'm like, wait, yeah, that's true. <laughs> there are. There are. Um, so it's, it's interesting because part of me realizes I, I did work through many of these books that I probably wouldn't have. And there, there could be a few of those where I have gained, you know, something that I probably wouldn't have if I've you know, I had given up too early. But I, I definitely now see the case where if, if something isn't just clicking, you know, working through hundreds of pages through a, a novel that just isn't your cup of tea, it may not be the best use of one's time. So it, it certainly what I, what I did realize is when it comes to books, there, there's no absolutes on, on how much effort you have to put in. Yeah, that that's a great perspective. That wasn't even on my mind, but as soon as you said that, I realized like that is something I've done a little bit more over the last few years. Like I, I was like you, where I had to finish all the books that I started, and for me, I, I would usually kind of be reading a fiction book and a nonfiction book, kind of in parallel. Um, I have one friend like asked like, how do you read two books at the same time? It's like, well, you can watch two TV shows and follow them from week to week, and like it's it's just not that difficult, and this is more unintentional, but I found there are times where like okay, which do I sit down and read, 
And if I'm consistently choosing one of the books over the other, it's not so much that I'll intentionally quit the other book. It's just like I kind of accidentally never finish it. And it's like it's interesting having, because I have that choice. I'm always choosing the other thing. And so I do have a few books on my Kindle that are like 70% read. And I'm like, you know what? I'm probably probably never going to be back to finishing that one. It's like I've, I've moved on. But having the choice of something else helps that a lot. And it's made me more cognizant of author's style, especially with nonfiction. So like uh, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, uh, Happy Money by Drs. Elizabeth Dunn and Michael Norton. Like the style was really enjoyable, really made it really easy to get through those books even though they were nonfiction. And sometimes some of the fiction, just, just, I don't appreciate the style, and i kind of like, nah. I end up choosing the nonfiction book enough. But I I have kind of done that same thing. It's like, yeah, probably over the last five plus years, maybe a little longer, it's like, I I kind of, maybe, you know what, probably since I've had kids. (laughs) Like my my oldest daughter's 10, probably about that time, like, no, my time is so valuable. I don't have all the excess time to go reading books I don't enjoy. And so, like, yeah, if, I, if I'm not enjoying it, that's made it easier to, to move on. Yeah, so so you can kind of understand there's a bit of a, a fine line there because... If you give up too quickly, then you might miss out. But if you hold on too long, you're not being so you're you're not being so careful with your time. Yeah, i i i think I think part of that that helps a little is again for books specifically for for nonfiction. I think so much of the emphasis or the main point tends to come up sooner in the book. And then it's more support and more examples. Um, and so it's like if I happen to only get 70% of the way through, I probably got 80 to 90% of, of the author's point. That's more of a guess. I don't, I don't, I don't know enough about nonfiction writing to be to make to make that blanket statement. But for fiction, it tends to be like buy-in to the characters, like that kind of emotional buy-in. Like, I want to know what happens to this character versus if it's not a good style, I'm not enjoying it. It's like, I don't care what happens to this character. I'm okay not getting to the end. That makes sense. You know, it's one of those things where there's likely a balance. It likely comes down to individual preferences and, you know, probably somewhere in the middle on that spectrum is where an individual will likely end up. Yeah. That's, that's also one of those, like, I know, uh, uh, Stephen Levitt, the economist from Freakonomics, he has talked about that idea of like, yes, you probably should be quitting more. I think that's one of his early podcasts. Um, and it, it's, especially, kind of, especially with books, he uses that as a good example of just like, it's a time commitment to go through a book. And if you're not enjoying it or finding it valuable, then there, there's, it's almost like applying kind of like the, the trend following strategies of investments and other kind of finance and economics. If you're not enjoying the first two thirds what makes you think you'll enjoy the second two, the last third? It's like, is the author's style going to suddenly change that you will actually enjoy the, the, the last third of the book? Right. And that's, that's, that's probably an interesting like perspective, even from the, the investments. Like if, that's, that's, yeah, I think it comes up in sports a lot too. It's like, if the first two thirds of something was one way, what makes you think the next third can be different? 
And sometimes there's really good reasons why that can change. In sports, it might be like, this player was injured and now they're healthy and coming back. Uh, they played most of their games away, but they have an easier schedule moving forward, both at home or playing inferior opponents. Like, you can plan this out. And I think that, that's probably a good perspective of, like, even when it comes to stocks, like, if the stock has done poorly, but and it doesn't have to be versus benchmark per se, just, like, but whatever measure you're choosing, what makes you think it'll change? And so in your example with the Hollister and Abercrombie and & Fitch and those uh, niche retail markets, you kind of acknowledge malls are dying. Can this company do anything to change moving forward? And in this case, probably not. There's no reason to think that people start going back to malls once they've stopped going. And that might be a way to kind of acknowledge those uh, emotional attachments to the past of like, yes, I know we got here. So if this is going to do well moving forward, what has to change? And you can like just almost apply common sense. Is that a realistic possibility or are you just fooling yourself? I would kind of say that that still might expose an individual to a circumstance that's not so predictable. And, you know, what comes to mind is the notion of just black swans in general. The, the idea behind a black swan is there are unpredictable events that are beyond what is normally expected that have severe consequences and you know by their very nature they're rare but their impact is tremendous and the models do a very poor job the pre-planning the pre-mortems do a very poor job of picking these things up and that's why they're called black swans right they're, mm -hmm. they're just rare enough events that are you know destined you know in air quotes to happen but they're just so unpredictable that nobody would really see it coming. And I, you know, I say nobody because there'll always be somebody. Yes. Yeah. You know, there's, there's always 1% of the population <laughs> predicting that'll end and it happens 1% of the time. And so that 1% is right. Right, yeah. But they're well, wrong the other 99% of the time. Yeah, with, with 5 billion people, somebody's going to make the right prediction about something. Yeah. So the that is a concern though if you're trying to follow all these rules there can still be gotchas it's still challenging to come up with a strategy that you know is kind of foolproof or indemnified against this particular concern of um you know did, did you should it should you have gotten out earlier or did you stay in too long and you know that I I think that comes back to my my high level you know philosophy on just remaining passive. It obviates the need to think about this very hard concern. If you're trying to outsmart the market, you need a game plan to deal with these types of things. Of you know to realize how long until you call it quits. And even if you have that game plan, you can still get sideswiped. So it's one of those things where you can try your best, but even then, it, it doesn't guarantee success. Yeah, I think that, that's a good perspective. Like, uh, yeah, it's just it's just so much of the future is. Unpredictable, like just but having that good game plan in advance is it's kind of always like the the best of no, but the best of any fool like the lack of any foolproof strategies kind of thing. It's like you're better off having a plan in place and adjusting for the unknown future than waiting for the unknown future and then trying to guess from that point moving forward. Right. 
you know, it's like, for example, a, a good part of predicting the price of a stock is predicting the future earnings. And a, a really common practice is you have these professionals who try to forecast earnings. They try to say, okay, I've looked at this company and I've looked at the past history and I've analyzed and crunched a bunch of numbers. And I think the earnings are going to be you know, up 5% in the next year. And you have all these other ana analysts who do the same type of thing. Some say down three plus six, down five and so on. And you average it all out. And what the research kind of shows is all of those smart people, they are smart people. They're, they're trying very hard and they're running very rigorous models. They don't end up beating a, a regression, meaning you just plot the points of the past earnings and you, you, you know, forecast it out one period by just drawing a line. And that's kind of because if you use all the past information that we have and you throw it into a model, well, the, the best you can kind of do is just, you know, push it forward one period, you know, just extend it forward. If you try to do anything else, you're making a prediction based upon un enough unknowns so that there's so much noise. That, uh, yeah. Th this reminds me, I think it's from the book, The Signal and the Noise but by Nate Silver, um, how like weather predictions is like one of the best success stories. And it's like this, this really interesting combination of um, the historical data along with a, uh, reacting to real-time weather patterns. Especially once we've got satellite images of weather patterns, uh, kind of is that combination of algorithm and human intuition. But kind of prior to, I think it's satellite imaging or Doppler radar, something like that, prior to the technology getting there, the best way to predict the temperature was either the temperature the day before or the temperature on the same date last year. Like consistently, if you just take yesterday's temperature is also going to be tomorrow's temperature or is going to be the next day's temperature and, or the same temperature as last year. Like th those two systems, for as simple as they are, were better at predicting weather and temperature from day-to-day -day than any other meteorologist kind of until the technology got good enough that we could look at weather patterns where now it's actually it's kind of one of the single best success stories of prediction and being able to combine technology and intuition kind of to make pretty accurate weather patterns over like a three-day and they they even acknowledge the probabilities. Like, yes, we can get pretty we can get really accurate one day in advance, pretty accurate three days in advance, kind of accurate ish five to ten days in advance. But after ten days, like if, that's why you go to weather.com. It's like after ten days, they just provide historical data. If you're looking like what's the weather going to be like two weeks from now, it's just going to be what was the what was the temperature on that date the day before the year before or like the average of that date the last however many years i think that that keys into a, a pretty significant point here you know the notion is that when you're looking at some of these complex systems where there's a ton of noise surrounded by what could potentially be a, a very weak signal it's so much harder to make these kind of determinations on, you know, when to get in and out and if something's working or not. You need a lot of data or a lot of rigor to go behind that. You know, rules of like, um, you know, just kind of using guesstimation and, and things like that probably aren't going to cut it. Yeah, I know there's, there's a guy uh, what came to uh, sports predictions, trying to predict who would win games. Um, he was always trying to find the simplest. I think uh, one, like you look at betting, like there's all, most sports games will have a betting favorite. I uh, just look at like betting favorite wins this often. 
That's something like two thirds of the time. You could also look at a uh, team with better record wins. And if they have the same record, then home team wins. Um, and like, there's enough of these just plain heuristics of like, you don't need to be able to predict the future or do that much analysis. Like, yeah, there's so many things in life where just having this common sense baseline it is so hard to beat anyways. And then you get all to like costs and public markets and all the other randomness that just is kind of the same reason why it's hard for stock pickers to outperform whatever benchmark they choose. Right. We had this saying in, in the hedge fund space or the quantitative hedge fund space specifically where our job was to build these models and you take these inputs and you try to make predictions of where things are going. And the notion is, or the saying goes something like this, you know, give me five degrees of freedom, meaning five inputs, and I can predict an elephant. <laughs> <laughs> Give me six degrees of inputs and I can make the tail wiggle on command. <laughs> Meaning if you, if you throw enough stuff, you know, into the soup, you can get anything you want out of it. Yeah. Yeah. You can create a formula that'll tell you whatever you want it to say, whether it will be predictive or not is a tough question. So can you predict what you're going to do this weekend? Pretty good idea. There, there's more signal, less noise in that prediction. I think for me, it's going to be my son's soccer game on Saturday and my oldest daughter's softball, two softball games on Sunday. And then watching NFL games the rest. Oh, that, that's a good one. Tis the season. Yeah. I'd say that the, the football should be part of the roster and we're in the process of learning to swim. So some combination of the beach and the pool is probably on my docket. Okay. Okay. I'm trying to think like what, what's the, like the longest thing you can predict something that you feel like a really high confidence. You mean the, the long, the furthest out in the future? Yeah. What's the furthest out you can predict something with a 95 plus percent confidence. <laughs> like whatever uh, like anything right I, I think i will you know finish the the book on my my table by the end of the year okay That's, uh because uh i was even when it comes to like the scheduling thing um because of the fires uh i was supposed to have soccer practice for my middle daughter's team yesterday and the week before i would have said oh yeah it's scheduled we're gonna have this practice like but now i understand like the practice could be canceled due to poor air quality. So it's like, that's, e you know, as soon as I say that, I realize, you know what? The soccer game on Saturday could be canceled and the softball. So like, I, I don't even want to say I can, pre can predict those things with that high, high of a quality. I think, I think it comes to like, what I could probably say is there will be an NFL game this weekend. Right. And so it's like, I don't know if I want to predict any single one. Those are pretty high probabilities. But between hurricanes and fires and COVID, like, I think it's above a 95% that's, that each individual game is still going to happen. Maybe, but... like, when you said 95%, I immediately rolled out anything not completely under my control. <laughs> Like anything weather related or COVID related or <laughs> outside of this house. So yeah, it's like if you give a ninety-five percent chance of each individual game happening, and there's sixteen games, that's point nine five to the sixteenth is still forty-four <laughs> percent. So that's why I say like, yeah, but at least one NFL game will happen this weekend. Right. But I think that's just kind of like. Any other reasonable person is like, oh, like all games will happen. There's a, there's like, 
there's no way all the games won't happen this weekend. But yeah, it's like it's those black swan things. It's it's you want to be careful of like how high your confidence rate is. Yeah, for so. sure. Okay, well, this is a, a fun conversation. I don't know if we actually addressed the actual question of wh- how do you know when to quit or what 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 do you do when you quit or something like that. But I think we had uh, enough of a roundabout way of hopefully helping people with their decision making process. I hope so. I, you know, my takeaway is when it comes to the markets, you know, too hard, don't try. Buy and hold, you know, passives think for the long term but you know for the individual then it comes down to the individual but it's good to know that it doesn't have to be all black or white yeah yeah well thank you very much trishel it was a great talk today thanks aaron i enjoyed it as well and thanks everybody for listening if you're enjoying these conversations do spread the word thanks bye bye we appreciate you joining us today for this episode of the Mind Money Spectrum podcast. Be sure to visit mindmoneyspectrum.com to access the entire library of episodes. Remember, it's not black and white, but the wide spectrum of gray area where you get to pursue the freedoms you want in life. Opinions voiced in this material are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. All performance referenced is historical as no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested in directly. Have a nice day.